In Psalm 139, it says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Just had a sense that there may be some that they're just experiencing darkness in their life. If they think about their life right now, it's just, there's some dark, there's just, I don't even know how to describe it. There just feels like some darkness around them. And this passage says that darkness is as light to God. He sees exactly what you're going through. He sees exactly what's happening around you. Hard circumstance or things that are inward. Oftentimes I've heard this passage talking to those who are struggling with depression and like darkness inside. We just wanna pray and sing again, Christ the solid rock, I stand. Darkness is as light to him. There is a solid rock who beckons you to him in the midst of the darkness, not with it cleared up already, not with everything understood, but in the midst of the darkness, he sees you. Father, we thank you, band, for leading us in worship. It's a blessing to our souls as we pray, pleasing uh, to God. Uh, well, good morning. There are many newer faces here this morning, and I've not had a chance to meet each and every one of you, but I, um, my name is Elliot, uh, and it is my joy, my happy delight to be able to preach God's word this morning. Oh, yes. Children, come on now, get. <laughs> uh, children, you're released to your Hope Kids classes. Enjoy. Thank you, Hope Kids teachers, for serving in all the ways that you do. Let's pause, and just before we go any further, let's just ask for God's blessing on his preached word uh, and for his help applying it to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. Our ears and our hearts are naturally dull to your words. Even when our spirits are willing, our flesh so often remains so weak. I just pray, ask that we will find and experience this morning our souls and minds and hearts fully satisfied in you. Holy Spirit, speak precisely what you desire to each individual heart. Bind up the brokenhearted, cause us to rejoice in the full inheritance of what we have in the person of Jesus, the fountain of living water. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, hardships are unavoidable. Trials keep on coming in life. Christian and secular alike can recognize this, acknowledge this. Um, I'll read a couple verses from a Kipling poem uh, who was not a Christian. Um, he writes, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, 
If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Inspirational words that move us to want to fly above the fray of life, to be immovable, to be happy and content in all circumstances, to be a man and possess the earth and everything in it. But how? Such words can stir one and all indiscriminately. But how few possess the actual secret of it. To learn the secret that Paul learned. In Philippians 4.13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This peaceful, joyful contentment is so rarely experienced by those who populate this earth that it is called a secret by Paul. And yet, it is not really a secret at all. For both Paul and Peter explain the mystery of it. Our text this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Uh, the text will be on the screen, uh, but I would want to always encourage people to follow along in their Bibles as well. It holds the preachers accountable to staying in context. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The sermon title this morning is Our Enduring Joy. And we're going to consider three main questions this morning. Number one, what is the source and nature of our enduring joy? Number two, what are the threats and their purpose to our enduring joy? And number three, what is the value of our enduring, faith-filled joy? So first, what is the source and nature of our enduring joy? Well, we need not go more than two words into our text to begin to discover it. It is in this that we rejoice. In what? What is this in this? It is the faith in our living hope talked about in a couple of verses just prior to these. About everyone here was here previous weeks. So let's quickly look again. Look at halfway through verse 3. He, our loving Father, has caused us to be born, born again to a living hope. This is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance our Father, the God of the whole universe, wants to give us something as his children. And that is imperishable. It cannot die or be destroyed. It is undefiled and unfading. The good life of our living hope ahead 
cannot be exaggerated. You know when people hype a movie or the deliciousness of a food, and then because your expectations are so high, the actual experience of it just fails to live up to the hype? There will never be that experience of going in excited to this living hope of heaven and life with Jesus only for the promise to not live up to the hype. It is an inheritance ahead for us, like Mike said last week, that will dwarf Jeff Bezos' estate. The this in which we rejoice is our inheritance that is being kept and for which we are being guarded by our strength and effort and ability? No. Look at verse 4 and 5. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. Nothing can tarnish the shine of this inheritance. In our culture, we, we lose something of the, what is felt and meant by an inheritance in those ancient times. Sometimes we hear of people who have uh, received large inheritances from rich parents or uncles, uh, but for most of us, it's really just scenes in movies where people anxiously gather to hear the will read. But for most in our culture, most seniors are just stressed about whether they're going to have enough money to pay the mortgage and eat until however long they have on this earth, let alone leave something sizable for their children or grandchildren. But in these ancient times, homes and land were in fact a family deed, a generational right. You would gain all that was the father's at his passing. But with us, we have a father in heaven who created and owns the world and wants to give all that is his to us if we are in Jesus. Not at the Father's dying like an earthly inheritance, but in life with us. He wants to enjoy it with us. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance, Psalm 16. Um, and what folks, could be a better source of joy than knowing that because we have been forgiven by the Father through Jesus dying to take the penalty of our sin and rebellion so that we can be with him again, we get to live forever with the affection and security and abundance of everything the Father has for us. True faith in God's saving work and his promised future for his children always produces joy. Look at verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what is the result? Rejoice with joy. We have an inheritance ahead and th that is worth waiting for and waiting with excited joy. But let us not forget who Peter is addressing. We've covered in our series, he is addressing suffering Christians, those nicknamed in verse 1 as elect or chosen exiles. What is an exile? Well, an exile is someone kicked out of their homeland, the place of their fathers, the place of their inheritance. They Peter's original recipients of this letter suffered in the way of Christ. They've been ostracized by family, disowned and neglected by their homelands. And yet, though they've lost everything in this life, Peter says that it is their living hope and faith in the inheritance from God that they are rejoicing. And we'll, we'll see in a few minutes that all the hardships 
actually only cause the inheritance to be refined and purified further, increasing its value and worth and preciousness. And so, it is in the presence of suffering, as exiles, with no inheritance in this world, no sure hope of a better life on this side of eternity, that Peter says, it is in this living hope that those who have trusted in Christ for salvation from their sins and that he overcame the grave to give them new life in him, he will be given the world even though the world would not have us. Even though the world would exile us. We will get the earth and everything in it, as Kipling said. This is the in this, and it is this in this, that surety of it, and the surety of it coming to fruition because it is guarded and kept by God himself that you and I rejoice. Also note, however, regarding the nature of this joy, that though it is our living hope of what is to come in the future, it is very much a present joy. And for this, we don't need to look past the next two words. You rejoice. This is a present tense rejoicing. It does not say you will rejoice when you receive your inheritance. But in this you rejoice. Right now, the joy and happiness for the Christian is not just ahead, but for us to walk in even now as chosen sufferers, as chosen exiles. It is this actively being filled with joy that verse 9 says is the obtaining, the outcome of your faith. Faith for what the future holds produces Joy in the present. This is what faith, by its very nature, produces. We are even now growing in our experience of what paradise will be when Jesus comes again as we actively grow in our joy as we walk with Jesus now. And what does this rejoicing look like? Is this some sort of stone-faced, what? I'm happy. Or as a Tommy Lee Jones gif I've seen says, this is my happy face. <laughs> Look at the second half of verse 8. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It is a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible. Oh, I love that phrase that tries to grapple to find a way to express that which is inexpressible. The full exuberance of our joy. Gabalene, a commentator, a writer on 1 Peter, calls it a jubilant and thankful exaltation. How do people express jubilant exaltation? When Kate and I were 17, we took a missions trip to Brazil. And while we were in Brazil, we watched the uh, 2002 World Cup final between Brazil and Germany with about 30 Brazilians. Brazil wins the World Cup, and we got a full display of what jubilant exaltation looks like. <laughs> the room erupted with energy. There was dancing and shouting and jumping and hugs and high fives and the whole country declared the next day a national holiday. Banks were closed, schools were closed, businesses were closed. 
This is the kind of joy that was present in the lives of those to whom Peter wrote as they lived as exiles. And we start experiencing the full potential of that, the full measure of joy, even during unchanged suffering circumstances. Why? Because we have, we possess Christ, the fountain of living water. We will have the sight of him when we get our full inheritance, but we do not have him any less now. He is with us and in us, and we are in him. Fullness of joy, salvation from hardship and trials, those things we will have at the completion of, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but we walk in the present continuous tense for you grammar nerds, otherwise known as the present progressive or present imperfect. It is something experienced now, but continues ongoingly. We rejoice with inexpressible joy, even in hardship. Do you want a joy that circumstances cannot touch? Brother, sister, take Christ. I do want to, at this point to submit two errors that I see Christians often falling into. Um, not as a stern exhortation, but rather as a loving caution against things that I see prevalent in our culture. And because I join Jesus in wanting your and my fullness of joy. Error number one. Christians often try to have a dual identity, an identity as God's child, and yet at the same time seek acceptance by their neighbors and pursue trying to have the good life, their best life in this world. They claim the name of Christ, they call themselves Christian, but their priorities are functionally no different from the world. They're seeking nice homes and pleasurable lives in a world that exiles those who truly live for Christ. Just as Jesus was driven outside the camp, so too his followers will be driven out, exiled by even those we've loved. And these people who are trying to have this dual identity with whom in, with whom in too many times, in too many cases, I have been numbered, are rejoicing in the same things the world is rejoicing in. They create bucket lists as if the inheritance in the new heaven and new earth won't trump anything you could experience in this world times 10,000. And it's sucking their joy. So distracted by the cares of this world, as Jesus described it in his parable of the sower, that they stand in Sunday morning worship, stoically unmoved by glorious, eternal, joyful realities, but then erupt with joy when their team scores a touchdown on Super Bowl Sunday. Or celebrate with gusto when the next business venture finds success or they become a social media influencer, or feel great about life when they are respected by others, or are socially appreciated, or feel financially secure. It's not that their lack of emotion on Sunday morning is that they're emotionally reserved people, it's that they've lost their appetites for real, delicious, nutritional food by snacking on potato chips. It is as John Piper says in his book, A Hunger for God, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things, and there's no room for the great. If your Christianity is functionally nothing more than a couple of moral standards, more than those who aren't churchgoers around you, but in terms of observable life priorities, otherwise no different, you're not living with the living hope of the eternal reward at the Savior's side, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
as your driving motivator for all you do. And you have no security of joy. You will continue to ride the roller coaster of life with your joy based upon whether you're feeling successful or not. Feeling comfortable or not. Feeling respected or not. Feeling at peace with your family or not. Feeling admired or not. Feeling competent or not. Anyone that has any objectivity can see that suffering is unavoidable in life. And for all of our culture's promises of finding your best life now, we all know that hardship is always just right around the corner. If it's not already sucker punching us. And if you want a joy that is immovable, steady, unshakable, by life circumstances, something that causes you to mount up on wings like eagles, even through and above hardship, then you need this living hope as your one consuming passion, zealous passion, the eternal inheritance shared with us by the Son of God himself. I emphasize this error first because as Christians, it can be so, so easy as American Christians, it can be easy to just layer in a little spirituality and just keep living comfortably. We're being seduced by our culture and world, and we get more excited about and spend more time planning and saving for international vacations than we do about our eternal day of jubilee in paradise with Jesus. We're storing up treasures on earth instead of heaven, and it's robbing us of joy. If your joy is anemic, consider afresh what your eyes are regularly fixated upon. Are they on the unfading living hope or are they on the passing shadows of worldly pursuits? Those things that moth and rust destroy, as Jesus says. That's error number one. Error number two, Christians who act like spiritual Eeyores. You know Winnie the Pooh's friend? In Eeyore's words, I was so upset I forgot to be happy. There's nothing about their disposition that causes anyone to believe that they believe that they have a beautiful inheritance and have gotten a hold of the pearl of greatest price. Much more disproportionately focused on the first part, the sorrowful part of Paul's words when he says that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. They're kind of like the sunny personality of Puddle Glum from C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair. That they always have a comment about horrible life is. He's the one that said, the bright side of it is this, that if we break our necks getting down the cliff, then we're safe from being drowned in the river. <laughs> in fact, our modern therapeutic culture is not helping here much either. They so often spend such a disproportionate time focused on examining and feeling the hurt and abuse we have experienced in the past that though they promise a happy result, they can't deliver because it has no living hope that transcends the hardships of life. Nothing that can really help people possess the earth and all that's in it. It's not that there isn't value to unearthing and diagnosing past hurt and trauma, but when life is lived for just what is below the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, and as the, only the modern secular psychologist can offer, there is only ever more abuse and trauma ahead. One broken relationship leads to another. Life is hard. There's no denying it. That is why Peter is saying that while there is real and present and exuberant joy for the believer, the Christian, later in his letter, he will exhort his readers to not stop fighting for joy in suffering. And also why he moves right now in these verses to address the reality of pain. And so we come to point number two. What are the threats and the purpose what are the threats and the purpose of the threats to our joy? 
Look at the fifth word. By looking at verse 6, though you have been grieved. Your joy, brother, sister, friends, is not uncontested. Do not think yourself some sort of spiritual misfit if your joy seems to be constantly in need of being bolstered, strengthened, reinforced. The people of God have always lived in tension here. Jesus speaks to it. Happy are you when, you re- when others revile and persecute you falsely for my name's sake, for your reward is great in heaven. Paul speaks to it. The suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that it will be revealed in us. And James speaks to it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. And Peter is here speaking to it. The Lord and his apostles knew that we were going to need a lot of reminding on this front. If you don't feel like you live on a perpetual cloud nine spiritually, then who of us actually does? Ask God to, in the words of C.S. Lewis, take you further up and further in into the wonders of communion with him. But the trials are real and many. And Peter was a realist about it. And this word, though, reveals that we are in good company with the rest of church history when we feel afflicted by hardship. Are you presently feeling that way? This is the well-worn path of every saint that has gone before us. This is... This is the path to glory. But oh, how many different forms our hardships can take. Look again at verse 6. Grieved by various trials. Perhaps this is obvious, but I think it's worth highlighting. This word translated various and translated manifold in other versions doesn't just communicate volume or quantity of hardships, but rather variety of kind. There is, as Jesus' parable of the sower puts it, scorching heat of persecution from the culture that we have to live in as exiles, ostracized and ridiculed. And there's also squelching cares and stresses of physical afflictions and provisional need, sorrows of many and various kinds. In the words of John Piper, it could be cancer or criticism. I'll add to it, it could be poverty or persecution. It could be barrenness or betrayal. It could be loneliness or lifelong sickness. Many are the kinds of hardships that we are vulnerable to in this sin-cursed world. And what is the point of all these hardships? To discover this. To discover this, let's look at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7. We have been grieved by various trials. Sorry, I got a little jumbled there. Um, Let us look at these various trials. This word trials in our Christianese way of speaking has become a synonym for hardship or suffering. But what is a trial, but a test to see if it can be, if something can be found of value or usefulness. Think of a medical trial. Uh, my sister-in-law, when she was alive, received a cancer trial treatment that showed some success, some value to continuing to pursue that form of treatment. It was effective. It was useful. It had value to life. Such are our hardships. They are testing and trying to see whether our faith is effective. Is it real? Is it useful? Does it have value? Will it have value before God and others? 
Or will it fade away when God doesn't just immediately remove all sources of sorrow and pain from your life? The world is full of sorrow, and it is destitute of hope. Will your joy from faith in the living hope display to the world that there is something worth hoping in that can make all the hardships seem light and momentary, like Paul said? The various hardships we endure are trials. They're trying and testing the effectiveness and genuineness of our faith. Checking to see if we are really trusting in the living hope to come or in the things of this world. If you've grown to be familiar with the Christianese way of talking, you have probably also heard the analogy of your faith being tested as like gold through fire. Well, here is the original source of such talking. Uh, Verse 7 says, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. The genuineness of gold can be tested by fire. So um, there are a couple different kinds of fire tests for precious metals. Some that simply test the genuineness and some that simultaneously purify. But the emphasis here in these verses is on the testing of genuineness. So if you were to hold a gold ring up to a fire, even a small flame like this, for an extended period of time. If it was a real gold ring, its appearance would be as yellow and shiny as ever. But fake gold or gold-plated jewelry will turn black and need to be cleaned and polished to look like gold again. To maintain appearances, such as the testing of faith. True faith that is rooted in good soil will bear a harvest even through the scorching heat of the sun because it has a healthy root system in Christ. In fact, that scorching heat will help bring the harvest. But seeds of faith that are planted in bad soil will be choked out or scorched by the pressures and afflictions of life. So take heart in your past, present, or future sufferings for two reasons. Number one, the trials are necessary. Verse 6 says, if necessary, you have been grieved. It is necessary to test the genuineness of your faith. The world is full of fool's gold. False gospels. False sources of good news. And only that which can actually bring joy into the reality of a suffering world is worth having. Something that can transcend circumstances. People are pursuing their happiness in all sorts of places and they keep getting let down because nothing lasts. Even something as seemingly permanent as gold is still ultimately perishing, our text says. But this enduring happiness in Jesus and the life to come with him, it never stops growing as a source of delight. And the world is looking. The world is looking to see if our faith actually produces joy and delight in the nitty gritty of life. And the world needs this. It is necessary. The world needs a living hope that brings joy. We're wired for happiness. So your suffering and trials are necessary because it displays the joy available in the exuberant good news of Jesus. It is this that causes people to, Peter to say a couple chapters later in chapter 3 and verse 15, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
Suffering with joy is necessary because it is a bearing witness to the world that will cause questions. Why? Why are you still joyful? Suffering with joy is necessary because it is a bearing witness to the world of the value of what we have gotten a hold of. And it will cause questions and then provide us the opportunity to share this remarkable good news. As the pleasure of a good meal is complete in the sharing the experience with others and having them enter into the pleasure with us, the more pe people praising and glorifying and enjoying Jesus together will further increase our joy in Jesus. We long to see others taste and see what we have tasted and seen as sweeter than honey. Psalm 119. And what we have seen and experienced as altogether desirable. Song of Solomon 5. We display that believing in him creates a, a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And while it is not the main point of these verses, Peter will go on to talk about this. And James so similarly speaks about suffering with joy that it's worth noting why he draws out why suffering is necessary for the Christian. And this is another reason. He tells his readers, James he tells his readers to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experiences to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. It doesn't just prove that your faith is genuine, but it also purifies it, strengthens it, increases its value. And that is why it is worth noting in connection here, just as the dross being purified in a melted gold, uh, dross removed from melted gold increases the gold's purity and therefore value, so too our purified faith purged from all the loves and loyalties to this earth, increases our faith's value to the Father. More on that to come. Your suffering is necessary. It is temporarily needful. And that is the second reason we can take heart in our suffering. These sufferings are time-bound. They are, verse 6 tells us, for a little while, even if they last a lifetime and never change before you die, they are but still for a little while compared to the eternal glories coming. Peter says that they're for a little while. Paul calls them light and momentary. Jesus calls the burden light and easy. If you can see each and every affliction as a way of demonstrating your faith in the one who is supremely satisfying, Jesus Christ, worth more to you than all the world, so it matters not if you lose the world, your reward will be great in the new heaven and new earth. As John Piper says, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It is totally meaningful. How is it meaningful? We come to our last point. What is the value of our enduring joy? Yes, it testifies to the world what actually brings happiness. But even more than that is what God, it is what God celebrates in you. If you so live to make much of Jesus in your God-ordained suffering, remember, you were elected for this. You were chosen for this. You were chosen a chosen exile, look what it says will happen. Verse 7. All of this will be so that 
The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. We're used to hearing praise and glory and honor in the Bible in connection to Jesus. But this is the reward that we will receive. God, our Father, will shower us with praise and glory and honor. Don't we all, down at our core, want a father that is proud of us, that brags about us, and is so happy with us? Don't we really want that relational security? It's not so much of our anxieties and strivings and work in life driven by this. We just want a father that is proud of us. Well, God, our Father, will celebrate your most worthy faith. He will delight over you with loud singing, Zephaniah 3. We will share in the very praise and glory and honor of Jesus because we are united with him. This is mind-blowing. In John chapter 10, it says that it is because Jesus laid down his life for the good of others, for his sheep, his children, that the Father loves him. It is because Jesus did that that Jesus loves him. And Philippians 2 says that it is because of this suffering that Jesus will receive the name above every name. And so it is with us who are in Christ. Our most intense suffering will produce our highest reward. Namely, the very sharing of the praise and honor of Christ, his inheritance. Living through suffering in a way that gets others wondering about the source of your joy and turning their eyes to Jesus is the very thing that causes our Father to praise us. And yet, it was all his work in us. We were chosen by him, verse 1 tells us. And this praise and honor, this inheritance is being guarded and kept by him, verse 4. He is making it all possible in you, and yet he is proud of you and your faith. If you feel unseen by others in your suffering, know that your father sees you and is happy with you. And though you do not yet see him, you are seen by him. You are seen. This is the preciousness of our faith to the Father, joyfully pressing through sacrifice because we have something far better in the person and work of Jesus Christ that he will reward that which he put within us to begin with, even the mustard seeds of our faith. Do you feel to have small faith, weak faith? Brother, sister, God delights in it. He delights in you. He will shower you with reward of praise and glory and honor because of your faith. And this is why, because you are living for something that cannot yet be seen. Jesus told the disciples and insisted on seeing him before they would believe that he had risen from the dead. He says to them, after he came and appeared to them, happy are those who do not see and yet believe. We will have a special reward that even the first apostles did not have. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That word glory is a weightiness of value, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Does it kind of weird you out to think of God praising, honoring, and glorifying you? In a way it should, but let it drive you to worship him for his undeserved favor in your life. And we will have this inheritance when? 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ, our text says. And in the words of our Christian writer, one sight of Jesus' face will banish sadness forever. Swallow every disappointment and cast all of our pain into the depths of the sea. We have not yet seen him, verse 8, but he's going to be revealed and seeing the face of the one through whom all good things flow will be all that we have ever wanted. And yet he is going to throw in the earth and everything in it, Kipling said as well. Suffering with joy is our high and holy calling that we have been elected to, chosen as priests that sacrifice our very lives for the cause of seeing the world find their delight in Jesus. And so, if you want more joy, more happiness in your life, take Christ again. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to, even into, the thing that has them. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation and for eternal life in him, then Jesus tells you that you have done this very thing. And it's already available to you. Jesus said in John 14, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So it is fully true of you, brother or sister, fully true of you, fully available to you experientially. He will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28. And so seek Jesus more. Don't stop asking God to increase your joyful, sweet experience of him. In the words of John, if you draw near to God and you're working this reality out in your life, he will draw near to you. And he is the joy, power, peace, and eternal life that you will get warmed and wet by. And so, as we come to communion this morning, let's take Jesus again. What we need is more of Jesus. And this communion meal is not just a symbol. There is a promise of his presence with us as we take it. So feel his happy presence with you. Let us commune, fellowship with him, and be satisfied by him. If you are not yet a Christian here, or you are someone that has called yourself a Christian, but that has not, but that has not been a dynamic relationship that, that brings joy, we want to invite you to come to Jesus and have all your anxious working through life satisfied. We want to offer you the good news of great joy available to all people. You're right now trying to go through life proving your worth and wishing others saw you. And here is where your worth before the Father is found. And we want to talk to you. I'd want to talk to you about how to find this happiness, this joy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so for anyone, if you feel like you've been...